Welcome, Ecom Logistics Nation. Thank you for joining today's episode. We're on a mission to share e-commerce logistics insights, trends, successes, and challenges from the leaders and innovators in our space. From a packaging perspective, best ways you can be more sustainable is to have better forecasting and better planning. And so that when you go to purchase the materials that you're gonna use to do the actual packaging, make sure you're only purchasing exactly what you need. Welcome to the Ecom Logistics Podcast. Excited to be continuing our series, shining the light on women leadership in supply chain, retail, and e-commerce throughout the month of March. Our special guest today is Alice Marie Jeffreyon, president of DHL Supply Chain's Packaging Division, where she's responsible for driving growth, product development, automation, and innovation across North America. Prior to joining DHL Supply Chain, which she was about 10 years ago, Alice Marie spent a little over 12 years in the merchandising, fulfillment, and supply chain space, as well as five years as a management consultant. Alice Marie, really excited to have you joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, let's go. Let's go talk packaging today. Let's talk all packaging. Right. <laughs> so before we jump into all things packaging, I uh, would love to start by learning about your personal journey and story as you climbed the supply chain ranks to reach your current role as president of packaging for DHL Supply Chain, uh, a role that you started in 2021. So again, would just love to hear your story as your career has advanced. Awesome. Sure. So as you mentioned, I started my career in consulting and I did a little bit of strategy, a little bit of operations, supply chain exposure in that role as well. So that was a great base and foundation to get me exposure to a lot of different industries and different cultures because I did work across different regions as well. But at that point, um, about five years into my consulting career, I decided that uh, I wanted to get involved in the dot-com world. So this will date me a little bit, but at that time, you know, everybody was getting involved in the dot-com world. It was very new. The industry was completely unknown. And so I decided that I was going to take a role with a dot-com company. And I say that like that because the job that I chose actually was a role with a merchandising fulfillment company that had brick and mortar operations. So it had a whole business behind it, but they wanted to bring web technology to that business. And they had visions of ultimately spinning off and creating their own public dot-com company. Um, obviously, I did not go public with that organization, but what it did do is it allowed me to come into the organization and from the ground up, build all of the web-based solutions that supported both our internal processes, but also our processes with our external customers. And most of them were B2B, but we also had B2C customers as well. So that was awesome because really, in order to build web-based solutions for a merchandising fulfillment organization, you have to understand supply chain and everything about it from the very beginning. So I did that role for about eight years at that organization and then moved into a solution, um, business development strategy role within that same organization for a couple of years as well, before ultimately joining DHL Supply Chain. And I really joined DHL Supply Chain because it was a global organization. I still wanted to learn more and um, had a, a lot of skills I wanted to gain in my career. 
And I thought that DHL would be a great organization to be able to do that. So I joined in the strategy group and I worked on strategy and M&A work within supply chain. But within a couple of years, there was an opportunity to take a global solutions role. So I took that role because I wanted exposure you know, across the globe, but I also wanted you know, to move into a little bit of a different function within supply chain. And ultimately, I then decided that uh, there was a role in packaging that I was going to take. And so I took that role, which was in our consumer sector. And that was really about growing our packaging operations and making sure that from an operations standpoint, we had the most efficient operations and that we really built all of the, the tools and the processes we needed to make sure we had a, a very sound business. Ultimately, that led to my current role, which is now I'm responsible for packaging across North America for all of our sectors for DHL supply chain. So I've moved around a little bit and I have had different roles across the different organizations, but I think all of them have given me a great foundation, you know, to really be able to take on my current role. Yeah, Alice Marie is like, I love packaging. I came from e-commerce, <laughs> but I love packaging. Just yeah. um I, you know, when we discussed this on the prep call a little bit as well, was that evolution of e-commerce, right? So, uh, you know, going back 20 years or so, the way e-commerce was treated by most companies was either a small little side project, right? It was run by usually a subdivision of the store's team or something of that nature that tried to like control it and run the operations or be it just a marketing function where e-commerce wasn't a standalone thing. And the way we built websites to how we marketed to merchandise to everything and even the experience, right? What have you seen, you know, if you were to show the journey from at that point to this point, specifically in the packaging space, right? Like how has packaging evolved over the last 20 years, specifically talking to e-commerce? So, you know, like you mentioned, the e-com world has evolved tremendously since I first joined it. So really, it was something that was very static in the very beginning, where I would say a great accomplishment to have an online catalog that people could look at a picture of a product and put it in their shopping cart. And so, you know, at that you know, early on, it was something that I think that we were all learning. But as time progressed and the technology changed, it made it easier for people to look at products online, evaluate products. I remember very early on in probably 2000, when we were putting products online, our customers came to us and said, well, can we see the back of that product? Can we see the <laughs> front? Can you turn that product? And we just kind of looked at them and we were like, well, I don't think so, but we'll try. And we tried and we couldn't get it to work. But now if you go online, you can see every single aspect of a product. The consumer really has a great view of everything that they're going to be purchasing. And because of that, it's made it much easier for consumers to feel comfortable with their purchases, right? They can go on, they can see, they can sometimes even try products on. I know that the other day I tried on eyeglasses, right? Just to see, and it looks pretty real. And so that technology has made it so much easier for end consumers to really be able to leverage e-com to be able to make purchases that normally they would not have been able to make. And because of that, organizations have had to change how they deal with those types of orders, right? So you need to make sure that when you're packaging the products, the products are protected during the shipping process because ultimately 
nobody wants to receive a product that is damaged and broken. But I would say the other thing too is we also don't want to receive products that just look like we've opened up a, sh a shipping box and it's just sitting there in the middle with just some filler around it. You want it to be nice. So we've seen that some of our customers have changed some of the packaging of the product so that when customers get it, they still have sort of that fun unboxing experience yeah. that you typically would have if you would go into the store and you'd look. Because a lot of times we walk into stores and we buy a lot of things we didn't expect to buy, yeah. but they look great. The packages look great. So, you know, that makes you want to buy them. Same thing at home. So when you receive that package, you want that unboxing experience to give you that same feeling of, wow, this is great. I'm so glad I made this purchase. And so customers um, really want that. And because of it, companies have had to alter and change how they package their products, how they configure their products. And so we've seen a lot of that in some of the packaging work we've done. Yeah. You know what What this reminds me of is Dan and I uh, working at FedEx Fulfillment uh, and trying to solve for this challenge of like, you know, we, we, we recognize this very early on the unboxing experience is critical. But when you get into a, a fulfillment operations, the problem is I can't have, if I have 30 merchants inside a 300,000 square feet facility, I can't be carrying 10 different boxes of 30 merchants and then try and allocate which box to assign. So we try to, you know, unboxing experience, brand really important. And then like, you want to tell the story, how much time did we spend trying to figure out how can I put a branded strategy onto the conveyor line so I could make it custom, but still have the standard 10 boxes that I still utilize, right? In a, in a fulfillment operation. I mean, yeah, we literally, and what, and that was probably back in like 2016 ish, something like that, where we actually stitched together or we actually had about three or four different companies be willing to come together on this project and stitch together hardware, software, everything where, what we actually developed, because to that point, we had dozens of clients. We were still in pilot mode, but we had dozens of clients in the same infrastructure, in the same warehouse, and they all wanted that branded solution. So we got to the point where we were able to get this very light white film on the side of every carton, and it literally lasers etched the logo of that brand as it's coming down the conveyance line. So it was, but then, then, uh, you know, there was a little bit of like smoke and, you know, thing, you know, so it just didn't work, but we tried really, really hard to, to come up with something that was scalable. You didn't have to have, you know, hundreds of pallets of branded packaging in your warehouse because that just didn't make any sense, but it did achieve that visual branded packaging experience that that all these brands were trying to achieve so i think we learned a lot we didn't come up with the ultimate solution but uh i th i don't think anyone else has at this point in time so uh, yeah, I, it's still out there for some somebody to solve i recently read something where amazon's now starting to get focused on like you know customer branded boxes uh, especially especially the outer cartons that uh, end up getting shipped and like they are trying to solve for it and yeah, I'm pretty sure Amazon can pull that one off. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Five years ago, Dan and Nanad with 300,000 square feet and <laughs> a few customers, it was a different scenario, right? V very interesting. Very interesting. And, I, you know, I just got a package uh, last week from a brand called Psycho Bunny uh, Apparel Company. And what I thought was really interesting is 
It came in a poly bag, but it came in a poly bag that looked exactly like what you would get at the retail store. It actually had a handle that you could grab. So it actually gave me the the feel and vibe of I just had a retail experience, which which I thought was which I thought was pretty cool. I hadn't seen that before. So there's a lot going on in the space. And I think Alice Murray, as we think about what happened during COVID, we had a lot of retail only companies having to figure out e-commerce in very short order. And we had, you know, kind of post pandemic, we had a lot of digital native digital brands that were really only they, their business philosophy was we're only going to sell online. And then they get the phone call from Nordstrom or Macy's or whoever. And now they've got to figure out retail. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've been talking about omni-channel for a very long time, but I think COVID really forced uh, both sides of the fence to come to the other side. And I think you know, as I think about that, and I think about the challenges that they have, right? When you, when you're packaging product for a retail store, you want it to stand out, you want it to pop. When you're packaging product for online, yes, you want it to look nice, but it's all about minimization so that my shipping costs stay as low as possible. Dim weight is a big factor. Uh, you want it to still have that visual appeal, but packaging might be different because again, you're, you're trying, you have different objectives there. So we just love how to get your thoughts on how brands are kind of navigating packaging uh, in this new omni-channel world. And, and what are you seeing? How are they solving for that? Yes. I mean, I think that's part of why we have a significant amount of packaging business, quite honestly, because our customers have us warehousing their products but then they need to take those products and create totally different configurations based on how something is being distributed. So if it's going to an end retail location, sometimes we have to change the product configuration to put it in a display to get that out to a store. If it's something that is being sold online, they may come to us and say, okay, we want you to change the configuration completely. We need you to carton or package or bag this product in packs of twos or threes or fours, which is very different than how they might sell that inside a retail location. So what I would say is most important is that you know, customers want flexibility. They want to be able to say, here's your product. It's going to look this way when it goes to the retail location. It's going to look this way when it's shipped you know, via e-commerce online to an end user. And you have to be flexible to understand what it is the customer wants. And you have to have the right processes and the right equipment in place to allow you to make those changes very quickly. And I will say with social media, you might have to make a change within days versus before. It could have been weeks. It could have been months. But if someone's online and writing about a product or saying, hey, this was a bad experience or this was a great experience, the companies want to react to that very quickly. So they need to have partners that can react to that as well to be able to change configurations to be able to take something that was meant to just be sitting on a shelf, but now put it in a carton and change how it looks for an end customer. So we've seen quite a bit of that. And with COVID, everything was uh, changing continuously. And so flexibility was the number one thing that was important. You know what, just spitballing this because the entire industry before was structured in a way where retail or b2b came first and then e-commerce came second so well you know if you look at most retailers flow they have their retail models retail distribution centers and then they pump into their e-commerce distribution environments right which is almost replanning from retail into e-commerce what you are describing is this tied towards i am an e-com first company 
that now needs to address uh, a B2B scenario. And that's where my packaging need comes in. And I can tell you, having done warehousing, one of the holy grails inside the warehousing is managing B2B versus direct-to-consumer inventory. Because I have a case of 12. The moment I break it, it's no longer a B2B inventory that's available, right? Yeah. And usually everything comes in cases. I want to ship it out e-com so i'm going to move inventory from my b2b inventory bucket to my direct to consumer mm -hmm. is there an opportunity to have packaging on demand and maybe that's something dhl does as an example where you kind of flip it to say okay continue doing your direct to consumer business but when you get uh, a b2b order where it needs to be retail compliant it needs to go out and you have you know, promise to Target that you sell in case of 12 and you promise to Walmart that you sell in case of 10, we can now take your direct-to-consumer inventory, convert it into B2B and ship it out. Yes, and I would say that happened quite a bit both ways during COVID, right? So that absolutely occurred for sure where you have to do a lot of what we call repacking, right? Yeah. But we do manage our inventory you know, so that we can manage the inventory from an each's perspective, a case's perspective. We know which inventory is potentially being fulfilled via e-com, via retail. But we can mix that when needed, and we can switch that when needed. Ultimately, systems have enabled us to be able to do many things like this. And so I think that's been key for us as an organization. But we did see during COVID quite a few of our customers um, from a retail perspective asking us to change configurations and even from an e-com perspective, perspective asking us to change configurations as well because nobody knew what was going to happen. You know, just yeah. when we thought, hey, we were going to yeah. go back to stores, another wave came through and then it just changed things. So those last few years were very difficult to recognize what the trend was going to be because we had never seen that before. So again, I think it goes back to being able to be flexible, being able to have the systems in place that allow you to track that inventory very closely and understanding the units of measures across the facility is extremely important. And I think, um, you know, that's continuing on today where that flexibility now is expected from our customers. So, yeah. well, Alice Marie, you, you said you didn't want to age yourself talking about the uh, dot com bubble, but let me do you a favor and age myself right now. So <laughs> back in the early 2000s, when I was just getting into, you know, e-commerce fulfillment and supply chain, I had some customers that that asked me to do some packaging for them, uh, contract packaging. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was no more than a bunch of folding tables, you know, making an assembly line and all manual labor, just you know, pushing things through. And with what you just said, with how flexible we have to be today, how you have to adopt to potentially something going viral on social media. And as we just talked about the D to C and B to B, um, you know, making inventory available across sales channels. Obviously, things have advanced a lot lately. And we're still faced today with, you know, the cost of labor, the shortage of labor. So we'd just love to get your thoughts as to like what you're seeing that you're really excited about as it comes to packaging automation, innovation, technology, and maybe what trends, you know, what are you keeping your eye on? Um, or, and what has like really been successful maybe over the past year or two? Yeah, so like you described, you know, we had uh, very manual sites at some for some of our customers because they were constantly changing what they want or they had us doing displays and trays, which aren't necessarily things that could have been automated in the past. But 
you know, during COVID, everybody kind of experienced a labor shortage. So we needed to recognize, well, wait, if we're not going to have as much labor, but we still need to be flexible and still need to be able to customize products for customers, how are we going to solve that problem? So just like with other organizations, we saw sort of an increase in automation needs very quickly from a packaging perspective. And so we started to look across our operations and say, okay, what are the activities that happen everywhere all the time that we can redeploy automation if needed more easily than putting in something that only works for one customer. So we looked at things very simply as things like labeling. We did a lot of labeling and a lot of people put labels on boxes and, you know, changing information or putting some branding on, whatever that is. And so we looked at how could we make that process more automated? So we looked at things very simple, like automating the labeling process. And then we looked to see, okay, what happens at the end of a lot of our packaging lines? Well, we're doing a lot of repacking, reconfigurations, and we end up with a lot of corrugated waste. And that waste requires a lot of people to take it and to move it, to bale it, to get it recycled and so forth. And so we looked at things like automating the trash lines. So we leveraged AGVs to do auto trash removals at the end of our lines. So that eliminated quite a bit of labor out there, but it also gave us the ability to put something in place that we knew we could use everywhere. And it wasn't so specialized that it could be outdated or it couldn't be used across customers. So we looked at things like that. We also looked at more, I would say, fun automation, which are things like robotic arms, where if we are taking and putting product the exact same way into boxes, we can leverage that as well. We looked at things like underlying palletizers. So at the end of almost every line, we're building cases and we're having manual labor, put those on pallets. And when you're short on labor and you don't have a lot of labor, that is one area that really can help minimize the labor. And so we have deployed end-of-line palletizers across some of our sites to really help minimize the labor. I will say that with you know looking at AGV, AGVs, robotic arms, auto trash removers, things like that. So did all the other customers, right, or companies. So as a result, we can see that some of the lead times of these uh, equipments that we're going after are also increasing because everyone experienced the labor shortage. Everybody turned to automation to really help um, combat that. And now we're seeing that the lead times for some of these items and some of these equipments that we want to put in place are much longer than than usual. However, as we continue to do ROIs when we're looking at um, different projects out there, we are finding that although we still always need labor, we need to start to balance it differently so that we can leverage the automation and the technology more so that we don't ever get to a point where we have to say to a customer, well, we don't have the capacity because we didn't get the labor or we can't run shift number two and number three because nobody wants to come into work right now. So we have to have that balance. And I think that's been a challenge for all organizations. And, you know, it's something that's continuously changing and continuously evolving. So we do have to watch that. But automation has played a key role in really helping us, you know, meet our customers' packaging needs, helping us you know, meet our e-com needs as well for our customers. And so I think that it's going to continue to be uh, very relevant for the industry. And and what piece of automation would you say excites you the most right now? Like everyone else, we love to see the robotic arms. Yeah. I know 
DHL supply chain has implemented locust bots inside of our facilities to really help with the picking packing process for e-com orders. That's extremely exciting to see. And what's most exciting is when you see the technology put inside of the facilities and the warehouses, the employees get super excited. You know, most people thought, uh-oh, employees are going to get nervous that they're not going to have a role. That's actually the opposite. Oh, yeah. There's different types of roles, and the employees are finding that it is so much better to work with automation because it's more efficient. They're learning new skills, and the technology is making them more excited exactly. to come to work as well. So all in all, it's just been it's been great to add automation to the, the warehouses. Absolutely. And I, I mean, as as you bring in automation, your throughput increases, your throughput increases, you're going to just require that much labor to be able to manage all the other functions, including managing the robots and whatnot that goes into it, right? So yeah, yesterday we were talking to someone um, from LaserShip, they mentioned they went from a facility sorting 50,000 packages a day to 500,000 packages a day in the same facility, mm -hmm. right? When they introduced automation and yeah, the workforce actually increased with automation being actually brought in again, the business has to bring in the throughput necessary, but yeah, with automation, I think the fears have kind of gone away that it's going to take away all the jobs, right? Like not yeah. yet, not yet. It is fun. I would say it's so much fun for people to be working with the robots and the equipment. They're learning how to program and how to set things up. And it's just a great additional skills that people can use and take to additional roles as they grow their careers. Yeah. I've been the, the, just in the last news cycle, there is a big drive towards, uh, what do they call it? Human form robots. So the next next whole evolution now is just like robots that act and function like humans. And the use cases, again, most of them are just like pilots or here's a little image of what it's going to look like with literally hundreds of millions of dollars being poured into it. But the use case always is the warehouse first. It's always like for all of those companies, it's like it's going to be in the warehouse and it's going to be robots working side by side, but they have complete human form. So yeah. it's not trying to do it better than human. It's basically a one-to-one -one replacement type of strategy. Yes, yes. I mean, we've talked to companies that have said, hey, look, you could treat us like a temp agency where you call up and you say you need 50 workers today and we'll put 50 robots on a bus we'll bring them to your facility and those 50 robots out of the bus and so i know we all laugh and we joke but you know it's coming <laughs> it's coming it won't be long it will be there but that is that is sort of how these organizations are thinking and some of these tech companies are looking at things of how could we make things be so much easier for people so i've definitely also heard uh, some of the potential that is out there as well. Exactly. But again, you know, just like everything that goes through a hype cycle, I think there's going to be a whole excitement, right? And then you're going to realize like, just, I always go back to my example of drone deliveries, right? No drones are landing in my backyard after 10 years at this point, right? Like after Amazon making the announcement. So it takes a little bit of time and it's going to be adopted slowly in niches where it makes sense. And then there's going to be a big burst of like complete adoption in the market. So uh, I really look forward to it. Just, just talking about some of the tech stuff, right? You know, outside of the robotics and automation, are you seeing any like packaging trends, right? Like smart packaging as an example, or where is where are things moving, right? Like, is there a play with the whole blockchain thing, right? Because packaging is the point that you're trying to capture, 
an event occurring, right? Like if you are going to track it through the entire journey. You know, and I I would say for some of our life science customers, we are absolutely seeing some of that smart packaging being implemented where they're temp controlled, reusable totes that we are shipping, you know, pharmaceutical products out. We're able to track them. We're able to, we are able to track the temperature throughout the entire process as well so that we can maintain the validity of that packaging um, tote as well. So we're definitely seeing technology like that. And we are definitely seeing how smart packaging is playing more and more of a role. I would say mostly with our life science customers as well. But again, you know, as the costs come down, I think we'll start to see that more and more across some of the other industries too. Yeah. Yeah, de- definitely. I, I think that that uh, tech right now, as far as temperature is concerned, it's just essentially a label that goes, hey, it was supposed to be between 35 degrees and, you know, 55 degrees. If it ever goes out of the range, the sticker goes red, which basically indicates that, hey, this stuff is no good anymore, right? Is that or it yeah, actually yeah. shows you the temperature? They do, and then they have they have a tracking actually in there too from a, a GPS perspective oh, wow. as well. So you can actually see that. So, and again, it's only for certain products because it is expensive, right? So I think that down the road, when cost comes down, we'll be able to see that on more and more types of products. I played around with a certain label tech very recently called, uh, I think it's by a company called Viliot, uh, Viliot, and uh, it's funded by Avery, you know, those guys that make those labels that you print out like your envelope labels and stuff right so Avery made investment in this company called Viliot and what it's using is a bluetooth low emission label and the cost of the label is like 50 cents or something essentially what this label can do is transmit a low emission bluetooth and also do temperature sensing uh, gyroscopic sensing like it it's some really cool tech it's it's almost like the next generation of rfid what rfid could do but this one you know rfid inside warehouses can basically tell you where something happens to be or it's in the warehouse but it can't really tell you where exactly in the warehouse versus a bluetooth low emission could actually pinpoint and triangulate and say hey it's in that right back end corner right and the the, the cost is kind of starting to come down on some of that stuff yeah pretty wow, impressive yeah crazy. yeah that is cool that is cool i'm gonna actually take us back one second since we might have 10 years before the robotics replace all of us one of the things as you were talking alice murray i was thinking about that it would probably be a good use case for in, in the packaging world where you have you have your your customers that have consistent volume, but you probably have a lot of ebb and flow with projects. So I would assume, like you had said earlier, you know, temp employees are a big probably part of you know the packaging labor that goes into it. Have you found that there's been a use case for like? Uh, the gig workforce or, you know, making scheduling very flexible based off someone's availability to come in maybe for a few hours, because I would assume there's obviously going to be training that's involved, but it's very consistent work. So I was just thinking as you were talking, maybe that, you know, that, that might be a good use case. Yes. So we do have a program called when I work and basically it is managed by an app that allows a person to go in and basically look to see when the available schedule is and they can choose their their window of time they want to work. 
and sign up for it. And it's all done electronically. And we don't do it at all sites. We've, we've uh, been doing it just at a few sites. But it does give people that flexibility because, like you mentioned, we recognize that there's a whole part-time workforce out there yeah. that wants to work, but needs to work at certain times, certain times around you know, families, around schools, and so forth. And so we thought, well, we'll give them the ability to go on and schedule their own work in chunks of hours so that they can manage that process themselves. And from a manager perspective, I would say it is easy to go in and you can see in the app all of the different people that have scheduled their times. You can see which blocks you may be missing times and so forth. And you can then tap back into a temp workforce or you can tap back into your full-time workforce to be able to fill in the gap. So being able to give people that flexibility is important. And I know we originally used that um, technology that was developed for the restaurant industry where it was being used for people to go schedule in the service that they wanted to work. And it's been evolving. And now we're able to use that to be able to schedule when they want to come into the, the warehouse and, and work based on their own schedule. So Absolutely. It is something that is being done. And there's a tremendous part-time workforce out there that we need to take more and more advantage of, especially as the labor market remains pretty tight. That's awesome. And I had not heard of when I work. So uh, thanks for sharing that. That might be something that's helpful for our listeners too, uh, to go go check them out. Uh, shameless plug, uh, free commercial for them. So uh, <laughs> that's great. I think we would not do the podcast or this episode justice if we didn't tackle the subject of sustainability. And we, you know, as hosts of this podcast have been talking a lot about it. And our guests have been talking a lot about it. And we know for the past 15 years, people have been talking about sustainability, but it seems to be meaning more and more today. And people are actually taking action. And it's not just, uh, you know, words on a website or on a, you know, on a sales sheet. It's, 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 people are, are really focused on it. Companies are really focused on it. So, Obviously, there's a packaging as it relates to when you, you know, if you're in a distribution fulfillment warehouse, you're, you pick the order, you pack it, you put it in the poly bag or the brown box or whatever you put it in and it goes out the door. You're in front of that where you're actually packaging product and materials to make that uh, sellable unit. What are you seeing? Um, it, well, I guess the first question is, A, is sustainability something that your clients are really asking for or demanding? And if so, like what what are you know what are you seeing out there that uh, in the market that that's catching your eye? Yes, I would say that almost every single customer that we work with has a sustainability agenda, and they expect us to be able to help them reach their sustainability goals. So, just like every other organization, we have our own goals as well that we are trying to achieve as an organization, but. We also need to make sure that what we're doing at the very specific site level makes sense for our customers. So I think we've seen many customers talk about this at a very high level and a very strategic level, and they're talking about these big initiatives. Ultimately, there's so many things we can do at a packaging site level that really will help um, our customers hit their sustainability goals. So obviously we all have recycling programs at our sites, right? We also have zero waste to landfill programs at our sites so that we can minimize as much waste as possible. And I think the other thing we've been looking at is how to not produce the materials to begin with. So from a packaging perspective, 
one of the uh, best ways you can be more sustainable is to have better forecasting and better planning. And so that when you go to purchase the materials that you're going to use to do the actual packaging, make sure you're only purchasing exactly what you need. So what we've tried to do is have technology that helps us plan much better and helps us push that purchasing of the packaging materials as far back as possible so we don't end up with facility that has obsolete inventory. We all know forecasts change quite a bit, and that's always going to be the case. But if we can manage that process better to postpone the purchasing, that really helps drive more sustainable solutions for our customers. So I would say from a customer standpoint, that is something that we are working with them to push most because it really saves you the most when you don't actually produce the packaging materials and we don't end up with obsolete inventory. So we spend a lot of time working on that. And obviously you do need some packaging materials to package products. So we also try to take advantage of making sure we have that right size package and we're not shipping extra large boxes. We're not filling things with extra fillers. And so we have what we call an OptiCarton technology that allows us to right size the packaging as much as possible as well. So that when that end user gets the product, they're not opening up. And so I would say it's very, very important that we right size that packaging as well. And then of course, when we do use packaging materials, we are working with customers to make sure that we have the most sustainable materials, materials that can be recycled, materials that have already been recycled and that are being reused as well. And just in general, I would say making sure our workforce understands how important sustainability is for our customer also makes a difference because by minimizing scrap, for instance, in the production process, it's also important. And so if people do things right the first time, you're minimizing that scrap and you're reducing um, excess uh, landfill that, that potentially could hurt the environment. So there's so many things that we're looking at and that we're doing it. And I know that from an overall perspective, we've got projects we're working on to see, okay, well, we use a lot of pallets. So we've been working with a company that uses coconuts to build pallets. And they're called oh. local pallets. So making sure that looking at those new innovations, say, okay, what can we do to make something more sustainable? So we've got cocoa pallets, we've got reusable totes we're looking at for a lot of our customers, some that have subscription-based services where these totes can be reused hundreds of times in, in the actual physical shipping process. So it just makes it easier for us to have a more sustainable product for some types of things like that. And then of course, we try to reuse any waste as fillers if we end up with some of that waste we can shred that material and we can package products with it as fillers as well so there's a lot of different things that we can do and we are doing with our customers i would say starting with the number one thing is to plan better and to postpone the purchasing of the materials as long as possible so we can minimize the amount of obsolescence that we would have from a material perspective yeah, so don't have an aisle full of packaging sitting out Correct. there. Right? Because that's Correct. what you get to see in most warehousing environments yes. you go through. And there is an entire aisle full of just packaging because you, either you were able to purchase it cheaper or you didn't have planning. So it's like, let's just get Correct. an amount of, you know, products. So, right. Yeah. And you, you brought up a great point. People buy a lot because you can get it for less money. So if I buy a thousand of something, it may end up being overall cheaper than if I were to buy 700 of it. So I'm going to go buy the thousand. So we, we've also seen that when we're doing purchasing. And so one of the things we do with our you know, suppliers is say, okay, give us the price for the thousand. 
pretend we bought a thousand, but only ship us the you know, <laughs> seven hundred, right? So we don't need to have them, but we have to pay attention to that. Yeah. I think that's part of the education process. Is if we make sure everyone working on this understands how important it is, they can look out for things like that, and yeah. they can say, okay, well, I can take advantage of a, a better price, but I'm going to make sure that I don't waste materials by doing that. Exactly. No, makes sense. And so, you know, last question for me, would you say, and this is based on the trends that we have been observing, of course, sustainability has been in the public discourse for as long as we remember at this point, but only just of late, right, that I feel that tide has turned where customers or C-suites aren't just greenwashing that conversation. It's actually a real conversation. This is me talking very unfiltered. Are you observing the same thing that it's now real before it was just lip service? I agree with you. I think a lot of people talked about it before, but I think now companies have made commitments formally um, based on the science-based targets, and they are holding their organizations um, accountable to hit those commitments. I mean, we've done it as an organization to be net zero by 2050 and less than 29 million tons of CO2 emissions by 2030. And those are some pretty big statements that you can make as an organization. And it requires huge investments. I know that we are investing about $7 billion in order to hit those targets. That's a, that's a large sum of money. And that's what these organizations have to do. And I think right now what we're seeing, some of the large companies have not only made the statements, but they have the money and the funding to be able to execute that. And that's what I think is making the difference. I think before people were waiting to see, is this going to stick around? Is this something that's really going to make a difference? And now they see that it does. And now they see how important it is to the future of our, our world. And so I think now we're definitely seeing organizations truly commit. And just from a PR business standpoint as well, right? If you just look at the IRR, right, like the cost of sustainability is starting to become, you know, manageable. You know, if 10 years ago, investing $7 billion had an internal rate of return of 5%, yeah, it was, you know, not as good of an investment, right? Like just like any capital investment. Today, the cost of sustainability is cheaper, you, you know, it, and doesn't matter what you talk about, be it your solar panels or be it packaging or being able to buy sustainable packaging. The cost of everything's coming down, relatively speaking, to a point where your internal rate of return could be 20%, right? Like so that $7 billion investment could pay off in the next five years or something of that nature it starts making sense, right? Yes. So, yeah. And one business idea for you, Alice Marie, you know, my wife loves going on Pinterest. And when you said coconut pallets, I could tell you if she knew those existed, my bed frame would probably be made out of them. Um, I'd have to be, you know, I'd have furniture made out of them. So reselling those coconut pallets might be, uh, might be a new business uh, endeavor oh for God. you. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you, Alice Marie. Uh, this has been an absolutely great conversation. Uh, where could our audience go to learn more about DHL supply chain packaging solutions? And what's the best way for someone who wants to reach out to you, maybe follow you on social media? Yes, I would say you know, to follow me, go to LinkedIn because I am definitely present on LinkedIn. And I would say to learn more about DHL's packaging solutions, you can Google DHL packaging solutions Perfect. and you will, you will get directed directly to us for sure. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you joining us today. 
Thank you. Absolutely appreciated being here. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to maximize your supply chain. Available on all major podcasting channels. Thank you for listening and see you in the next episode.